All right. Can you hear me? Yes. Excellent. Let's pray. Father, I pray you help us to have sharp minds to understand what you're saying to us today. Pray you give us soft hearts that will be moulded by your hands. Change our hearts to see what you're saying, to follow where you're going. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hunger. Have you ever been really hungry? Hungry enough that all you can do is think about food. I know when I was a young bloke, I decided I hadn't really done a proper fast before. So I decided, I'm not just going to do a little fast. I'm going to fast for as long as I can. I'm going to the power of God. And um, it wasn't very long before I was craving something to eat. But instead of spending time focusing on God, which is the whole idea of fasting, I preferred to go about life as usual and keep busy to distract my mind from thinking too much about food. There's plenty in the Bible that commands, commends the benefit of fasting, but not much about how we're supposed to put it into practice. I thought you weren't supposed to eat or drink anything, so not even water. And I lasted about four days until I became sick. (laughs) But as soon as I ate and drank something, I improved. And it wasn't long until I was all good again. And let me tell you, food never tasted so good. Interestingly, we can't survive very long physically without food and water. Wilderness guides often refer to the rule of three, which says that a person can live for three minutes without air, three days without water, and three weeks without food. The fact is, we need to eat and drink every day. And it's the same spiritually. We function so much better in every sense when we eat the food of his word every day and drink the water from his spirit throughout the day. And if we don't, we usually start to fade in our spirit fairly quickly and fall out of touch with God and fall back into trusting our own limited resources, which are usually pretty inadequate in coping with life, just like my fasting attempt. So when we spend time with God in his word and through prayer, is it something we do because we know we should do it? Or do we do it because we want to do it? Because there's a hunger and a fire burning within us to want to dwell in his presence, to know him better and understand what he requires of us. I know for a lot of my life, I've probably been more in the former category. But what I really want to see us develop this year in our church is a hunger and a passion for God. A hunger to love him more, a hunger to know him more, a hunger to grow in an understanding of him and what he wants from us. Yes, I want to see a hunger for miracles, for revival, to see souls saved. But there's also practical issues, like I know one of the songs this morning said um, to care for the weak, to bring justice to those that can't help themselves. There's so many areas in life 
that God can help us and help us be a witness to others and show him to a hurting world. I believe Philippians 2.13 sums up what I hope to see continue to develop in each of us in our church and it says, For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Let's just break that down a little bit. For God is working in you, that we be open for God, Holy Spirit, to work in us, to have fresh revelation in his word about what he's really saying, what, what he really means. Giving you the desire, the hunger to want to do it. But he's not just leaving us alone to do it. He's providing the power to do it. He gives us the resources to do it. We shouldn't be relying on ourselves. Often, in our world around us, they hold up, you know, there's so much talk about, oh, is he the greatest of all time in sport or whatever field it is? You've got to be the best. But how long are they really the best for? Not very long. Who remembers the heroes of yesteryear? Not many. I remember... Um, um, we prayed for Frank earlier on and I remember sitting and talking with him one day and when he was young he was a, a great soccer player and he uh, did it professionally and then he coached and he said you know he got together with some of the mates and all they could talk about was yesteryear the things that are gone you know their hero days and he said yeah but what's happening now what are we going where are we doing Why, you know that if you're looking behind all the time What's happened before, yes, it's good to learn from it, but if we're just focusing on that, Jesus says you can't plough a field when you're looking behind you all the time. And uh, I remember the story of a family, um, I went to a family reunion when I was younger, and old chap has passed away now, very funny guy, talked about when he started off on his family farm over on the Air Peninsula, because that's where my mum's family from, is what the horse and plough and he said there was a water tank up the end and he used to focus on it and so he um, and that helped you get a nice straight line and then you know you don't look behind you when you're playing you're focusing on that keeping a straight line look back oh what's happened that it's like a banana behind you in the road <laughs> so he goes back to do it again and this time he's really concentrating looks behind you it's another banana <laughs> What's going on? Does it again? Another banana, even worse. And then this time he's looking at it, he's going, hang on a minute, that water tank's moving. <laughs> Someone had bought the water tank, put it on the back of a bullock, and it was <laughs> and it was moving. So if you're not focusing on the wrong thing, you go astray as well. It doesn't take I mean, bullocks only more move at walking pace, but that's enough to make him go way off track doesn't take much if we're focusing on the wrong thing to start only one or two degrees before we know it, we're heading back in the other direction that we came. So today I'm hoping to whet our appetites and stir a hunger in us for God. We're going to dive into the book of Mark to look at who Jesus is, five ways Mark reveals his identity through what Jesus said and did, and how Jesus revealed God's power and authority and what that means for us. Firstly, I just want to have a quick look at another scripture in John 2 
that shows Jesus' passion for God. As the disciples were watching Jesus chase out the merchants and money changers from the temple and drive out their animals with a whip and turning over their tables, scattering money everywhere and telling them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. The disciples remembered the scripture from Psalm 69. Passion for God's house will consume me. The word passion could be translated as zeal, and I think that's the most common one used, but the modern translations don't use it, probably because it's a bit of an old-fashioned word, but it's the same thing. Passion, zeal, desire, fire, devotion, love. And what's more, this passion for God consumes Jesus. It's all that matters. It also directs his actions so that Gentiles could once again worship God because this marketplace had been set up in the Gentiles' court in the temple which meant there wasn't anywhere in the temple for them to worship God. The Israelites had become so consumed by their own self-interests and their own self-focus they had forgotten why God had chosen them which was to be his witnesses and ambassadors to the rest of the world. Jesus doesn't want anything to get in the way of those who want to come to God. This is what Jesus' whole ministry and life is about, to make a way for the lost to be reconciled to God. So who is this Jesus? Do we really know him? I know I heard a story, um, I forget the guy's name, he was a former England rugby captain, and a lot of this... Today's sermon, I I, I nicked the ideas from him. Um, But uh, he uh, was going out to lunch somewhere and he was told, I'll meet you by the staircase. And so he thought, I'll I'll meet halfway up because I'm not sure if I'll be up the top or down the bottom because it was two-storey. So he's standing on the staircase waiting. um, But when he went up there, um, there was another guy waiting on on the same place where he was going to wait and, you know... There's sort of a feeling a bit awkward because it's a bit of a funny place to wait and they sort of nodded each other and felt a bit uncomfortable like, you know, do I start up a conversation or not or whatever. And the guy looked sort of familiar but he didn't think too much about it and then about five minutes later another guy came along and said, oh, William, there you are. Um, we're in the private dining room. Come on, come, come this way. And then just as he walked off he realised, oh, hang on a minute, that's Prince William. <laughs> I've just been here... Five minutes with the future King of England and I didn't even say anything to him. He missed his identity. He didn't realise who he was. Now in his case, yeah, it's a bit disappointing because he missed a, a probably a once in a lifetime opportunity. But if we miss who Jesus is and what he's really all about, that has eternal consequences. So let's get into Mark and look at five ways that Mark reveals Jesus' identity. Firstly, Jesus reveals his power and authority to teach. In Mark 1.21-22 it says, Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum. When the Sabbath day came, he went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority quite unlike the teachers of the religious law, Jesus taught in a way they'd never heard before. 
Teachers of the law only taught what they had heard before from the great teachers of the past and gave their opinions. Nothing new. Even though he didn't have their education, Jesus gave answers to even the hardest questions that had baffled others. A new teaching and with authority. After Jesus had cast out an evil spirit out of a man in a synagogue in Capernaum, let's have a look at the people's reaction in Mark 1.27. Amazement gripped the audience and they began to discuss what had happened. What sort of new teaching is this? They asked excitedly. It has such authority, even evil spirits obey his orders. So Jesus could teach, but could he live out his teaching? I know one of my favourite sayings used to be, do what I say, not what I do. But Jesus taught us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And later when he was being nailed to the cross, he prayed for his executioners. Forgive them, Father, because they don't know what they're doing. That is practising what you preach. Jesus also reveals his power and authority over sickness in Mark 1, 29-31. After Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home. Now Simon, Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. So he went to her bedside, took her by the hand and helped her sit up. Then the fever left her and she prepared a meal for him. Just a touch of his hand as Jesus helped Peter's mother-in-law get up and she is healed of her fever and then serves them. A few verses later in verse 34, Jesus healed whole crowds of sick people. In verse 40, a man with leprosy who had been an outcast and no one wanted to touch him pleaded with Jesus to be made clean and Jesus moved by compassion, touched him and healed him. Jesus healed people of spiritual suffering as well as physical suffering, releasing people from demonic oppression. In verses 23 to 27, um, in the synagogue of Capernaum, which we just heard about before, and then in verses 32 to 34 we hear, That evening after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. So Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases and he cast out many demons. Even unbelievers recognised Jesus' amazing accomplishments. Josephus, the well-known Jewish historian, called him a doer of wonderful deeds. No one doubted his power, but the religious leaders argued about where this power came from, accusing him of being possessed by Satan. In Mark 23 to 27, in chapter 3, Jesus responds brilliantly to their accusation. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan? He asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? 
Only someone even stronger. Someone who would tie him up and then plunder his house. So Jesus is saying that's exactly what he's just done. He has illustrated and shown his power and authority over Satan and the demonic forces. Jesus also has power and authority over nature. In Mark chapter 4, 35 to 41, the disciples are caught in their boat in a terrible storm and fear for their lives. They wake Jesus up and accuse him of not caring. Don't you care that we're going to die? Have you ever feared for your life and it's been out of your control? I know when I was young, I was with my mate and his brother. His brother had this tarana that he was doing up and he was having a drag with his girlfriend. And we on Paynham Road, heading into the city, we got up to about 170 kilometres an hour and the whole car is starting to shake. And then some old lady pulls up way down the road, pulls out in front of us, hit the slam on the brakes and the car starts getting a bit squiffy. But it wasn't a total panic, but I just thought, wow, that car took a long time to stop from that speed. You know, you, when you're young you don't realise about these things, but I certainly felt quite anxious uh, in that, through that whole situation. But if something was out of my control, even though his brother's yelling at, yelling at him to slow down and stop being an idiot, he wasn't in control of the car. Don't forget, some of these disciples are hardened fishermen. So they've seen it all before, yet they were convinced they were going to die. But Jesus spoke, Silence! Be still! And the wind stopped. And there was a great calm. Now the disciples would have known Psalm 107, which was commonly sung in the synagogues at the time. It says, He spoke and the winds rose, stirring up the waves. Their ships were tossed to the heavens and plunged again to the depths. The sailors cringed with terror. They reeled and staggered like drunkards and were at their wits' end. Lord, help! they cried in their trouble. And he saved them from their distress. He calmed the storm to a whisper and stilled the waves. What a blessing was that stillness as he brought them safely into harbour. Let them praise the Lord for his great love and for the wonderful things he has done for them. They would have realised that this is exactly what's happened in front of them. And they knew it from the psalm who did it. It was God, only God. That's why they ask the questions and ask each other, who is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. Not sure if they were more frightened before or after the storm was calm. Because they know they're in the presence of God. They know that only God has the power and authority over his creation. Jesus also has the power and authority over death. In Mark chapter 5. Imagine the desperation and helplessness that we feel if we knew one of our children was dying. We have all experienced the pain of losing someone we love and care about deeply. The pain of separation and loss hurts terribly. Last year when our friend and pastor Darrell went to be with the Lord and while we were happy that his pain and suffering was over and he was in the care and love and joy of the Lord, We still missed him terribly. So when Jesus says to Jairus, after someone has just come and reported 
don't bother the master, your, your daughter is dead. So when Jesus says to Jairus, the father, don't be afraid, just have faith, he needs to be absolutely sure of himself and his power to raise the dead to say to that man who's just lost his daughter, in Mark 5, 37 to 42, Jesus took her hand and told her to get up, which she immediately did to their astonishment. It's as easy for Jesus to raise someone from the dead as it is for us to rouse someone from sleep. Surely it would be foolish to ignore or think lightly about someone that has the power over life, death and nature. One day we will all die too. Can we trust Jesus with our death and that he has the power to raise us up to life as well? Yes, we can. And that is why so many Christians have given up their lives because they believe in Jesus and his power to not just raise the dead and do miracles, but to change our hearts, our way of thinking, our values. That's why we surrender ourselves and follow him. But wait, there's even more. Jesus has power and authority to forgive our sin. Be quiet, be still and get up aren't the most outrageous things that Jesus said in Mark. For that we need to go to chapter 2 verses 1 to 5. He says to the paralytic who was lowered through the roof, so there was a huge crowd that had come to see Jesus and some mates had brought, a, four guys had brought along a guy that was paralytic, in other words he was paralysed, he couldn't move, we don't know what caused it, but they couldn't get him in there, so they was that devoted that they climbed him up and brought him, you know, it's pretty hard even with four people, I know I've moved people that are unconscious before and had a similar amount of people help me, and it's not easy to move someone that's completely out of it or can't move. And even with four, to get him up on the roof is a pretty good achievement and shows their dedication. And they <laughs> broke through the roof and lowered him down in front of Jesus. And as he's lowered through the roof, what does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. What? This man wants to be healed of his paralysis, but Jesus wants to heal him of his sin. Why would Jesus think it's more important to deal with this man's sin rather than his paralysis. Because sin is mankind's biggest problem. It's not paralysis, or disease, or war, or terrorism, or global warming, or ecological disasters, or poverty, or lack of education. We have all rebelled, rejected and turned away from God to go our own way and make our own decisions about what is right and wrong for us. We ignore the creator who made us and whose loving heart longs for us to seek him and his ways. It's damaging enough for our relationships when we ignore one another. But when we live without reference to our creator, God, who gives us each breath, is even more damaging. When I insist on independence from the one who made me, knows what's best for me and sustains my life, it will lead to death. And not just here, but eternal death, described in the Bible 
as hell. That's why Jesus focuses in on the problem of this paralysed man's sin. And he makes the claim here that he has the power and authority to forgive our sins. We can see how staggering this claim is when we see the reaction of the religious leaders here in Mark 2, 6-7. But some of, the leader, some of the teachers of the religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what's he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Now they don't mind the paralytic being called a sinner. They know everyone sins. Their problem is with Jesus' claim that he has the power and authority to forgive sin. If sin is ignoring God in the world that he has made, then only God has the authority to forgive it. After all, if we do a person wrong, then only the wrong person has the right to forgive us, and in this case, the wrong party is God himself. The question is, does Jesus really have the authority to forgive sin? And does he really have the right to identify himself with Almighty God? Or is Jesus blaspheming God as the religious leaders are quietly thinking to themselves? To answer that question, Jesus does something amazing. In Mark 2, 8 to 12, Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or stand up, pick up your mat and walk. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, We have never seen anything like this! To illustrate his claim to have God's authority and power, Jesus immediately cures the man's paralysis with a few words. But the healing itself isn't an end in itself. It's not for entertainment, to gain popularity or money. No, he heals this man and countless others to reveal his true identity. He is quite obviously behaving and acting with God's authority and power and expects us to come to this obvious conclusion. Mark shows us time and again that Jesus not only claims to have the authority of God, but he also displays the power of God as he teaches, heals the sick, casts out demons, calms the storm, raises the dead, and forgives sin. He acts in God's world with God's authority as his true son. Of course, if Jesus is actually God's true son, then this really matters. It becomes very personal. Do I recognise who he is? Will I listen to him as my teacher? Can I acknowledge that he has complete control of the circumstances of my life? Over sickness, over nature, and even over my own death. Can I see that he is the only one with the power and authority to forgive all my sin or to leave it unforgiven? 
Will I recognise him now while I have the chance or will I recognise him later when it's too late? Now if we do accept Mark's account and believe who Jesus is and what he has done, we are accepted as his adopted sons and daughters of God and he sends his Holy Spirit to live in us. The same Holy Spirit who gave Jesus the power and authority to teach, heal the sick, cast out demons, calm the storm, raise the dead, forgive sin, has now been given to us, now lives within us. So we now, as his family, as his church, have that same power and authority to teach and proclaim forgiveness and reconciliation with God through Jesus and to heal the sick, to cast out demons, calm the storms and raise the dead, to shine the light and peace of God into a dark and troubled world. This is our mission. This is our fight. Lord, I pray for all of us today that you will fill us with a hunger and passion for you and that we will take hold of all your power and authority that you are prepared to invest in us to see your purposes fulfilled in our lives, in our church and the world around us. Lord, we want you to help us learn to be used as your instruments to heal the sick, defeat the works of Satan, teach your truth, proclaim the good news of your salvation and freedom to those held captive to sin and to disciple your children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.